Thank you, James. Yes, indeed, my name is Mark Watson, and it is a joy to be here. I'm here with my wife, Denise, and uh, it's a joy to be pastoring our very small church in New Plymouth. Um, we started in October 2016, and the Lord is bringing to us people from around the city who have a hunger for the Word of God. I think Steve Lawson quite often said that there's a famine in the land, and there is indeed a famine for good Bible preaching in New Plymouth. And so it's a joy that we can do the Lord's work in that city. Well, please open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. I was struggling in some ways to, to come up with the passage to bring with you to you this morning. And as I was praying about that, the Lord sort of directed me to this passage, which is not necessarily a passage that you would just come to a church and just preach. It's one that you would normally only preach if you're going consecutively through First John, which is how we normally do things at Faith Bible Church, as you do here. But for some reason, I was drawn to this passage, and so this is the passage we're going to look at. First John chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 19 through to verse 24. And the title of today's message is The Assurance the Practice of Love Brings. The Assurance the Practice of Love Brings. So let me just read through that passage. I'll begin from verse 18 and follow along with me in your Bibles as I read. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth, and will assure our heart before Him. And whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. This is His commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. The one who keeps His commandments abides in Him and He in Him. We know by this that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. Father God, we thank You for Your Word. What a joy it is for us to come and sit at Your feet, so to speak, and to hear what You have to say through Your Word. Lord, would you help us to understand your word? We are feeble-minded people. We have sin that often interferes with our understanding of your word. So, Lord, we are dependent on you fully to understand your word. So we pray that you'll help us, that you'll convict us, that you'll comfort us as we read and understand what your word has to say. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, R.C. Sproul, in his Essential Truths of the Christian Faith, points out that there are four kinds of people in the world. There are those who are unsaved and who know that they are unsaved. These people make no claim at all to salvation. Secondly, there are those who are saved but don't know that they are saved. These are the ones who doubt their salvation. There are those who are saved, who know that they are saved. These people have an assurance of their salvation. 
And fourth, there are those who are not saved, but believed that they are saved. These people have a false assurance of their salvation. And as tragic as the people in groups one and four are, it is the ones in group two who are in focus in this passage that we're going to look at this morning. In other words, they are the ones who doubt their salvation, who at times doubt that they are truly saved. John sums up his purpose for the writing of this letter in 1 John 5.13, in which he says, These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. The Apostle John wrote this letter to Christians whose churches had been threatened with heresy. They were, there were false teachers who brought to the church serious errors concerning the per- person and work of Jesus Christ. Or more specifically, they brought errors concerning the incarnation of Jesus Christ. These false teachers then had then left the church, but their departure was a painful experience for the Christians who remained in that church. And so as a result, the Christians who remained there were in need of comfort and reassurance in their faith because their faith had been rocked by what had happened in that church. And so John writes this letter to these people to not only refute the teaching of the heretics, but also to assure his readers concerning the truth about Jesus Christ and their standing with him. In other words, John wanted to reassure them that they were in fellowship through, with God through Jesus Christ, that they were indeed in Christ, that they dwelt in him and he in them, that they were truly born of God, that they had been passed from death into life. And in order to reassure his readers, John lays out for his readers three tests that go through this entire book. Three tests that would give his readers an assurance of salvation. The first test was this. It was the moral test, the test of obedience. In 1 John 2, 5, John says, whoever keeps his word... In him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this, we know that we are in him. In other words, those who are born of God keep the word of God. They guard the word of God. They practice righteousness. This practice of righteousness means that there is an ongoing, consistent practice of doing what is right, of obeying the word of God. The second test was this the social test or the test of love. 1 John 2 verses 10 to 11 says, the one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness. Since God is love and since all love comes from God, anyone who is truly born of God loves God to love others or do does love others and loves them sacrificially selflessly again it's this ongoing love this consistently practice of love setting your love upon others that was the second test and the third test is what's called the doctrinal test or the test concerning a true knowledge of jesus christ 1 John 2, 24 says, Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son 
has the Father also. Those who are born of God believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is the God-man, that He was God in flesh, and that He came on this world in the flesh to take away the sins of the world. And so as we come to this text this morning, and leading up to this passage that we're going to look at, John has just elaborated on the test of love. In other words, that you love your brothers and sisters, that this is an ongoing, consistent, habitual practice of your life. And he laid out for his readers in the passage leading up to this, the evidence of love and the essence of love, which was perfectly demonstrated in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we come to this passage here in verse 19. John starts out by saying that this is how we know that we are of the truth. This is how we know that we are of the truth, that we love each other, that we love others. Our love is one way that we can prove that we are of the truth. It is evidence that we have been truly born again. And so the question for you is, do you love the body of Christ? Do you love the people of God? Do you show love to others? Do you selflessly and sacrificially give of yourself, set your love on those? Because this is how we can tell that we are truly born again. And this is one way that gives us an assurance of salvation. Jesus said something very similar in John 13 verse 35. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And so with all that in mind, John here wants us to know how we can be assured of our salvation by our practice of love towards one another. Therefore, in this passage, I want you to see three blessings that will arise in the heart of the believer as he practices love towards one another. Three blessings that will arise in your heart, which will bring you an assurance of salvation as you love others. And first, and I'll just give you these points uh, straight up. First, we'll see the practice of love brings the comfort of an assured heart. Second, we'll see the practice of love brings confidence as you approach God in prayer. And third, we'll see the practice of love brings confirmation of your abiding relationship through the Spirit. Let's just look at this first benefit, or the first blessing. The first blessing is the practice of love brings the comfort of an assured heart. And we see this in verses 19 to 20. Let me just read those two verses again. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. And whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Now, I'm sure that most of you, if not all of you, have experienced times of doubt, especially concerning your salvation. You can look at all these tests that John has laid out for his readers, the test of love, the test of obedience, the doctrinal test, the the test of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, And you can probably go down that list and say with a high degree of confidence, saying, yes, I do mostly strive to obey the word of God. 
Yes, I do believe that I have a love for the brethren. Yes, I do believe in the basic truths of Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God, that he appeared on this earth as God in the flesh, that he died for my sins so that I may be forgiven, and that he rose again on the third day from the grave, and he lives today, and only salvation is found in him. And you can say, yes, I believe in those things. I believe that those tests... I pass. But there generally comes times in our lives, moments in our lives, where Satan will put struggles in front of you. He'll, he'll put struggles in your life that will test your faith. He may put circumstances in your life that will shake your faith, as it did with the readers of John's letter. This often happens, though, through things like a loss of job, through marriage problems, through relationship problems but particularly this can happen through our sin or even our past sin our failures in life and so when we when you sin when you fail at times you can get too introspective where you become too concerned or overwhelmed with your past sin and at times you even doubt God's grace in your life No matter how firm your assurance may be, your heart at times needs to be assured. And this is what John is is expressing to us here in verses 19 to 20. The word assure, verse 19, means to persuade. It means to convince. It can also mean to pacify or to set at rest. So I think John is saying here that when you put your love for others into action... You, you reassure or you assure your heart before God. You reassure your heart before God as you practice love towards others. In other words, when you practice love towards others, you are reassuring that you are of the truth, that you are indeed in Christ. And we need to be reassured because there are times when our heart actually does condemn us. Now, the heart, as you know, of a person is really the central control system of a person. It is the seat, if you like, of all our thoughts, emotions, wills, and actions. It is the very core of the inner person from which flow the springs of life. But by heart here, I think John is referring primarily to our conscience, Now, the conscience is related to the heart of a person, but the conscience also informs a person concerning the morality of his or her actions. The conscience, if you like, acts like a moral referee, warning you of consequences that may result from a particular action. In 1983, a Colombian airline crashed near a small town in Madrid. When they found the black box... Investigators discovered that minutes before impact, the plane's automatic warning system repeatedly informed the pilot to pull up. Thinking the system was malfunctioning, the pilot switched the warning system off. Moments later, the plane crashed, killing all 162 passengers and the 19 crew on board. The investigators found out that the cause for the crash was pilot error, where there was a failure by the pilot to follow proper 
instructions. Especially since the pilot was not fully aware of the plane's exact position. And I think this illustrates what happens when we ignore the warnings of our conscience. When we do, there are, our, our, our actions can bring very serious consequences. Every single person has this inbuilt warning system that convicts us of sin or that informs us when we do the right thing. In the same way that physical pain in your body warns you of injury or illness, your conscience warns you of any danger to your spiritual health. The effectiveness of your conscience is dependent, though, on your theology and is dependent on your knowledge of the Word of God. So it is very important to be firmly rooted in Scripture for your conscience to work effectively. But sometimes the conscience can be overactive. In other words, you can become overwhelmed with the memory of past sins. Sins which may cause you to wonder if God's grace would even extend to those. Imagine someone who committed adultery before becoming a Christian. That person at the time of sin would not appreciate the gravity or the heinousness of that particular sin. But since becoming a Christian, he would come to realize the absolute heinousness of his sin, but he may also be overwhelmed with the shame and the guilt of that sin. Even though that person has had his sin forgiven, his heart may need to be reassured that indeed God's grace is sufficient and greater than his sin, and is therefore, no, therefore he is no longer under condemnation of his sin. In other words, if your conscience is not just informing you of your present sin, but also is overwhelming you with past sins that have been confessed and forgiven, you need to look back and see the evidence of God's work in your life and to see the evidence of his work in your life. And when you do that, that, that reassures your heart that you are indeed of the truth and in him. When we consider our love towards others, our eagerness to selflessly and sacrificially give ourselves to others, our heart is then reassured. And it's reassured because when we, when we act this way, we love in a way that is impossible for an unbeliever. It is impossible for an unbeliever to love others in this way. But this love is evidence of the new birth. It is evidence of you having been born again, of you having been made alive in Christ. And that should reassure your heart. So you can be assured whenever your heart condemns you because of the evidence of God's work in your life. You can also be reassured that you are of the truth when your hearts condemn you because, in verse 20, God is greater than your heart and knows all things. So when you love others the way that you are called to, the way you are able to because of the indwelling Holy Spirit, that reassures your heart. But you can also be reassured too because God is greater than your heart and knows all things. Commentator John Stott points out that our conscience is no means, in no means infallible. Its condemnation may be unjust. We can therefore appeal from our conscience to God who is greater and more knowledgeable. 
In other words, God knows all things. And, and in him, there are no such misgivings. And he is best to judge the true motives and intentions of our heart. Now, just so you know that there are two, two approaches to this particular verse, chapter 3, verse 20. Some commentators, many whom I respect, they approach this verse as a warning. They say this is a warning to us. In other words, they say when our heart condemns us, then how much more will God condemn us? Because he knows the inner recesses of our heart. He knows everything about us. So we can look at this verse and say, yeah, you know what? This is a warning to us. But the second approach to this verse is one of comfort. Rather than warning, it's comfort, which I think better fits the overall purpose of this context. John Stott again says to heal the wounded conscience and not open its wound wider. I think Romans chapter 8 verse 1 reinforces John's point here, saying that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. And later on in that chapter, Paul goes on to say that we can be reassured by the fact that no one can ever separate us from the love of God. In other words, God knows all of our weaknesses. He knows all of our greatest failures, yet he has forgiven us, if you are in Christ, he has forgiven us all our sin. James Montgomery Boy said that whatever our hearts may say, God knows us better than even we ourselves do, and nevertheless has acquitted us. Therefore, we should reassure ourselves by his judgment alone, which is trustworthy and refuse to trust our own. So if you practice love towards others, you not only have to prove that you are of the truth by doing so, but you also evidence God's work in you, which would bring you the comfort of an assured heart. Even at times that your heart or your conscience can overwork, get overactive and condemn you. And so that really is the first blessing. The first blessing that arises in your heart as you practice love towards others, that as your conscience works over time to condemn you, you can look back to see God's work in your life and, and that should bring you comfort of an assured heart. The second blessing is the practice of love towards others brings confidence that you can approach God. The practice of love towards others brings confidence that you can approach God. And we see this in verses 21 to 23. Let me just read those verses again. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. This is his commandment, that we love, excuse me, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. A couple things I want you to note from this passage. You have confidence before God in prayer. You have confidence before God in prayer. This word confidence means to speak with openness, means to speak with boldness. It means to speak freely and unhindered. 
It has the idea of a child who has the confidence and the freeness to speak confidently and openly to his or her parents. We have two daughters, both of whom are growing up, sort of. We have an 18-year-old and a 20-year-old, but they're both out of the house. My wife is very happy about that. I'm, I'm the overprotective father, right? I, <clears throat> I like my girls around me. But when our girls were very young, I tried to be very approachable to them because I wanted them to be able to talk with me in confidence or with confidence, to speak with me about anything that bothered them. I wanted to be approachable to them because I wanted them to be able to speak freely with me. We see the same idea here in verse 21. When you practice love towards others, that reassures your heart, and this reassured heart also means that you have the confidence to to go to God in prayer where you can speak freely and and unhindered with Him. You have the confidence before God. Before God has the idea of close proximity. It is a closeness in relation to someone. It has the idea of a face-to-face relationship. When you are before God, you are face-to-face with Him, if you like. There's an implied closeness there, a face-to-face relationship. And really, this coming before God face-to-face is really the very essence of prayer. Being face-to-face with God Himself and the blessing of being able to do so before Him is is a great blessing to do that. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, prayer is something in which we turn our backs upon everything else, excluding everything else, while for the time being we find ourselves face-to-face with God alone. This is what it means to be in prayer. This is what it means to be before Him. This is what it means to closely commune with Him, to simply be before God, face-to-face with Him wholly submitting to Him, totally depending on Him for all things, and realizing that without that time in prayer, you can do nothing. But John says that with a a reassured heart, you can approach Him with confidence. Now, the Bible does speak quite a bit about this confidence confidence that we do have in prayer. Hebrews 4.16 says, you know this, to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 10 says, Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Ephesians 3.12 says that it is in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in Him. And so this is the attitude that we have when we pray. An openness, a boldness, a confidence. Being before Him. Submitting to Him. Abandoning all of our perceived needs. Truly seeking Him. And as we do that, alone. And so having persuaded our heart, having reassured our heart, we can not only come before God with confidence but we can also have the confidence of answered prayer. That's the second thing I want you to note. We have the confidence of answered prayer. Verse 22, whatever we ask from him, because we keep his commandments and do all the things 
pleasing in his sight. It's a staggering statement, really. But one we see throughout Scripture. Again, Matthew 7, 7 says, Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. John 14, 14 says, Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that my Father may be glorified in the Son. And John 15, 7, that classic passage, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. So clearly we have the confidence of answered prayer, but we must be very careful here because some often view this as a free license to ask God for whatever they want, expecting to receive it. But you will notice in verse 22 that John attaches conditions to this promise of answered prayer. There are conditions to the promise of answered prayer. First of all, we receive answered prayer from God because we keep his commandments. Because we keep his commandments. Now, John is not saying that we can earn God's favor or that we can persuade God to answer our prayers if we obey him. It's not what John's saying here. The Bible does not teach that God will give us whatever we desire. Consider James chapter 1. It says there, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Verse 6, But he must ask in faith, without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. James says that if you lack wisdom, then ask of God who gives generously. But there is a condition there that you must ask without doubting. If you ask, but do not ask in faith, or if you ask and doubt while you are asking, you are like that double-minded man who is driven and tossed about by the wind. When we pray, we must do so in faith. Another condition in Scripture is found in Psalm 66, verse 18. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. We cannot pray, we cannot be face to face with the Father, if you like, if we have unconfessed sin in our hearts. If we're holding on to sin that we know that's there, we cannot do that. When you pray, we cannot hold on to sin, knowing full well of our sin, and knowing full well that we are living a life that is wrong. Well, back here in 1 John three twenty two, we see this condition for answered prayer, and that is because we keep His commandments. Keep has the idea of an ongoing practice in your life, where you continually, where you habitually keep the commandments of God. And even though you sin from time to time, we all do, you are consistently obeying the Lord, you are consistently obeying Him, so that this obedience is characteristic of you. You are known to be a person who obeys the Lord, even though you sin from time to time. Furthermore, John adds in verse 22, 
that we have answered prayer because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. We do the things that are pleasing in his sight. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 says, Therefore we have as an ambition to be pleasing to him. We must aim to please the Lord. We must have a heart that pleases him, that wants to please him. We must have a heart that wants to live for him, to seek after him, to glorify him in our lives. We need to have a heart that puts all things behind him. It means living with a heart attitude that is focused on him. However, there's always a however, living an upright life that is pleasing to the Lord does not guarantee that we always get what we ask for. John Stott again says, Obedience is the indispensable condition, not the meritorious cause of answered prayer. It's the condition, but not the cause of answered prayer. In other words, our obedience is the condition for answered prayer, not the cause of it. We need to understand that obedience to God and keeping His Word does not guarantee answered prayer. So while we make it our daily practice to obey Him, to live upright upright lives, God still in His wisdom reserves the right to withhold or grant any request as He sees fit, according to His will and our good. The same principle applies as to us as we raise our children. We don't give our children everything that they ask for. Well, I I hope you don't. Because if we do, they would be spoiled and selfish. And it could actually be harmful for them. So we have confidence before God in prayer. Because we keep His commandments. In verse 23, John sums up this commandment that we keep. That is, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. And here we have the two greatest commandments given in one command. In Matthew 22, Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But here in First John, we have this command summed up as one commandment, singular. And this commandment encompasses both belief in Christ and our love for one another. In other words, this is fundamentally one commandment, but has two parts to it. It's made up of a belief in the name of a son, Jesus Christ. Belief is, is the idea that we, at some point in the past you came to a belief in Jesus Christ, which was a saving belief. But where that belief continues throughout your Christian life. In other words, the moment you are truly regenerated, the moment you are made alive in Christ and born again, you believed in Him and you keep on believing in Him. The name of Christ refers to His person and His work. And he is the Son, referring to his essential deity, his equality with God the Father. It is a declaration that Jesus is equal with God and that he is the same essence as God the Father. 
Jesus is his human name, which means Lord is salvation. And finally, Christ refers to him as the Messiah. He is the long-awaited Messiah of God. And so to sum that up, to believe in the name of a son, Jesus Christ, means to put all of your faith and trust in him and only in him. He is the divine son, the incarnate deity, the sinless man who perfectly atoned for your sin. And so one of the questions that must be asked is, do you wholeheartedly believe in this Christ? Do you believe those facts about Jesus Christ? Do you believe that he is the son of God? Do you believe that he was God, man, in the flesh? Do you believe that he came down onto this earth? He, that he lived a life as a perfect man? That he went to the cross to pay for your sins and for mine? That he was crushed under the full weight of God's wrath for your sin? That he died and rose again after the third day? That he rose to heaven where he now sits at the right hand of the Father and only faith and Him can save you from your sins. Do you believe that? Do you wholeheartedly believe these truths about Jesus Christ? And if you have this belief in Christ, do you then have true assurance that comes with this true belief in Jesus Christ? Does this reassure your heart knowing you believe fully about Jesus Christ? And so this commandment of God is that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. That's the first part. But the second part is that we are to love one another. We are to love the brethren. Again, it's this idea of a continuous love, ongoing, habitual love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Both are true tests of a true Christian. In other words, you have true, lasting faith in Jesus Christ. And this true, lasting faith in Christ is evidenced by your love for your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And so far, we've seen two blessings that will arise in your heart as you practice love towards one another. It will bring you the comfort of an assured heart. It will give you confidence as you approach God in prayer. And the third benefit that will arise in your heart as you practice love towards one another is the practice of love towards others will bring confirmation of an abiding relationship through the Spirit of God. It will bring confirmation of an abiding relationship through the Spirit of God. Let's look at the last verse. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. John often speaks of this idea of abiding in Christ. He often speaks of the believer abiding in Christ, our remaining in him, our staying in him. For example, in 1 John 3, 6, no one who abides in him sins. That's a tricky verse but I won't discuss that today. But no one who abides in him sins. And of course, in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, we see that classic text, I'm abiding in Christ. Uh, verse 5 in particular, I am the vine, says Jesus. You are the branches. Who, he who abides in the branch, 
bears much fruit. Excuse me, who who abides in the vine bears much fruit. But here in verse 24, we see of a, a mutual abiding. We're not just abiding in Christ, but we are in Him as much as He is in us. Not only do you abide in Him, but the Spirit of God abides in us. And John talks about this quite a bit later on in this letter. 1 John 4 verse 15, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. The very next verse, verse 16, We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And so it is clear from this verse that obedience is the key to this mutual dwelling. Obedience grows out of our love for God and his word. And as a result of this obedience, the Spirit of God makes his home in us. As we obey God, we enjoy close fellowship with him and he with us. As we abide in him, he flows through us, producing the fruit in us which pleases him. We can't fully understand how this all works. The workings of the Holy Spirit is a mystery to us. Our union with Christ is a very complex topic. But for those who are truly born again, they can see the evidence of his working in them. And it is from these evidences that assurance of your salvation can be gained. It is the Spirit who made you alive in Christ. It is he who causes you to grow and to see your sin and repent of your sin. It is he who illumines scripture for you. It is he who leads you and guides you. It is he who enables you to love others when it was physically impossible to do so before you came to saving faith in Christ. And it is he who gives us an assurance of salvation through the fruit that is evident in our lives. A true Christian will know that they are saved because of these evidences. And these evidences are a result of the presence of the Holy Spirit abiding in us. I like how John Stott puts this. He says, It is he who inspires us to confess Jesus as the Christ in the flesh. It is also he who empowers us to live righteously and to love the brethren. So if we would assure our hearts when they accuse and condemn us, we must look for evidence of the Spirit's working and particularly whether we, He is enabling us to believe in Christ, to obey God's commandments, and to love the brethren. End quote. In other words, the presence of the indwelling Spirit in us is shown in our life and in our conduct. It's proven in our life and in our conduct. And if your conscience condemns you look for evidences of the spirit's work in you and this will bring you assurance our practice of love towards others is proof of our salvation your practice of love towards your fellow brothers and sisters in christ is proof of your salvation 
And as you practice love to one another, it brings us you an assurance through the comfort of an assured heart, through the confidence that you can approach God in prayer, and through the confirmation of an abiding relationship with God through the Holy Spirit. At times you will face challenges, trials, and often you'll fall into sin, as we all do. Sometimes your conscience will condemn you. It may rightly convict you of sin, so you confess and repent. It may even inform you when you do something well or good. But it may also condemn you to the point where you become overwhelmed with that past sin and guilt, so much so that you may even doubt God's grace in your life. But you can take heart in knowing that we have a God who is greater than we are and who can rightly judge our heart. And while our love for others is imperfect, and we don't always love others the way we should, it is comforting to know that God knows the sincerity of our love for Him and for others. And His work in us is evident of our love for others. If you see this growing evidence in your life, then you can indeed be confident that you are in Him. Let's close in prayer. Father God, we thank you for your word again. Lord, we just give you thanks that we can come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Father, we pray for those who don't know Christ, who don't know what it means to love others the way we should, the way you have commanded us to. Father, we pray for those that you would give them a heart of flesh, the ability to see that Christ is their Lord and Savior and that only faith in Him will save them from their sin and from eternal destruction. Father, for those who lack an assurance of salvation, we pray for them. We pray, Lord God, that they can indeed be assured by their faith by looking at the evidence of the Holy Spirit working in them, by looking at the evidence of their love for the brothers and sisters, by seeing the evidence in their own lives as they grow in Christ's likeness and become more like Christ. We thank you for those who are fully assured of their salvation. We thank you, Lord God, for that blessing. It is a joy to know that we are truly saved. It is a joy to know that no matter what happens, no one can snatch us out of the Father's hand. It is a joy to know that we have, without doubt, heaven to look forward to past this life. Father, our prayer is that everyone in this room, everyone connected with this church would have that faith, that everyone here in this room would have a true faith in Christ, a fully assured faith in Christ, so they can live a life full of joy and gladness, knowing that you, Lord, are sovereign, that you have saved us out of the pits of hell, literally, and, Lord God, that you have given us an inheritance that we don't deserve. What a joy it is for, for us to know Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. And we thank you, Lord God, for him. In Christ's name, we give you thanks. Amen.